Well, good morning. Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. We'll be looking today at verse 35 to 41, the last uh, group of verses in this chapter. After having spent some time in Mark 4, we had been looking at the parables in some depth and at some length. And um, just to review very quickly, the last parable we looked at the one with the mother seed. And it's a picture of contrast. It's something from a small, tiny black speck of seed could grow to become such a large shrub of the garden. And we noted that that is a picture of the growth of the kingdom of God, even as Christ says, and really a prophecy about the church and how the church would surely grow and is still growing. are still forming even in our day as the gospel spreads to the four ends of the earth. You think about the spread of Christianity from Christ and the disciples and, and through the spread through after Pentecost and, and it just continues to spread today. But today we enter a new section, a section of miracles. Having looked at four parables from verse 1 to verse 34 of Mark 4, now we're going to look at four miracles. Consider with me Hurricane Katrina, we just, or the anniversary I believe is coming up in a couple of days, but right now there is a tropical storm called brewing and continuing to grow. They're predicting it will become a Category 1 hurricane in the coming day, or the coming hours actually, and a Category 2 by the time it hits um, the Gulf Coast. It's threatening Florida right now, and just imagine yourself somehow in the path of the storm, and you've heard the warnings, and you've prepared, and maybe you've boarded up some windows, and you've bought some extra food and water, and the rains begin to come, and they're coming with great intensity, and then the winds begin to come, and you're hearing the debris smack up inside of your house, maybe a window breaking, and it just continues to rage on in intensity, and it's beginning to flood, and then suddenly, in an instant, Everything goes calm and the sky looks like it did when you drive in today. That's kind of something like what the disciples went through, the calming of the sea. There is a raging storm. The waves are billowing over the boat. The boat is filling up with water. And in an instant, from the authoritative word of Christ, there is an instant calm that comes. That's the picture that is before us we'll see both the humanity as well as the deity of Christ clearly set forth in our text today. And why don't we read the text, beginning in verse 35, if you'd follow along with me. On that day, when evening came, He said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took Him along with them in the boat, just as He was, and the other boats were with Him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke Him and said to Him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And He got up and He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And He said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, 
Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray together. Our Father, we would ask, Lord, that you would help us to remove cares and distractions. Lord, that we would, as it were, come to your feet to learn of your word. Lord, give us insight. Give us understanding into this text. Give us a reverence and awe as we see Christ in both his humanity and his deity. Lord, we pray that you would help us, and especially those going through storms and trials, even this very day, to take comfort in this, that our Lord is always with us, no matter what you bring. Oh Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to send the Spirit upon us, to give us understanding, to help the ones for the glory of Christ alone. In His name we pray, Amen. So this section, as I said, it really contains, begins four miracles. 435-3. And we're going to look, you know, obviously a couple of weeks to look at these, but there's four miracles demonstrating the authority of Christ over, first of all, difficulties or nature. Next time we'll see over demons with the demoniac. And then bringing the dead back to life as well as the woman being healed from disease, from the hemorrhaging of blood for 12 years. And many today question the miracles. They question the historicity of them. Were the disciples and were the gospel writers just embellishing things some? And they question that, and that comes from, a, from unbelief. But as we study this, in particular the text before us, you're going to see that there are certain brushstrokes of the picture, as it were, that could not be applied from anybody except from, from an eyewitness. That the imagination could not come up with so many exact, precise details as we have. And of course, as you remember, the, Mark is getting his information from the Apostle Peter as he pens this gospel. And so Peter, no doubt, as we know, was right there in the midst of it. Now our text reflects... Two Old Testament texts, Jonah 1, which we read, but also Psalm 107, which we'll look at later. The story of the calming of the storm allows Mark to fulfill his larger and greater purpose of interpreting historical events theologically to tell us who Christ is. Did you catch that? So this is a real event that took place. But what Mark is doing is he's trying to show us that this is the Son of God. That Jesus Christ is indeed God. And so don't miss this. This isn't just another miracle to wow us. Mark is trying to convince us of something. That no one can calm the waves. No one can calm the wind except for God himself. Therefore, Jesus is the Son of God. Another aspect, a vital lesson in this story is a lesson of discipleship. To trusting the Lord with whatever storms that he might bring into our life. So let's look, first of all, uh, there should be an outline on the back of your order of worship, (laughs) but uh, the true Christians will have their faith tried. The teaching that this will never happen, the health and wealth gospel that is very popular in our day, is not biblical teaching. We will have trials. The disciples had trials. There's enough people in this room that can testify. Yes and amen. It was good for me to be afflicted because God has great purpose in our difficulties and trials and conforming us to the image of Christ. So our text says in verses 35 and 36, this just kind of sets the context. On that 
day when evening had come. Now this tells us, this tells us a couple things. First of all, if you look back in chapter 4, verse 1, he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the Sea of Land. We talked about that, that most, there's a specific area on the Sea of Galilee where most people think that takes place, and it was sort of a huge bay, like a half circle, that would actually go up like a natural amphitheater, and all the crowds were on the land, but he got into a boat to teach. So that's the beginning of, of this day. Verse 34 of the same chapter. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining every t- everything privately to his own disciples. In verse 33, with many other parables, he was speaking the word. So I think it's safe to assume that when Mark tells us on that day, there's a specific day, it's the same day that Jesus had been teaching all of these parables. Mark tells us there was many other parables that Jesus had spent the day teaching and preaching, and now evening had come, and he purposed to go to the other side, to the eastern side of the Lake of Galilee. Now, you might ask, well, why? Well, he was probably tired. He probably needed a break. It was often that he would go to retreat, to go to refresh, to rest, to pray. But I would point out to you in Mark 1 and verse 38, after Jesus had cast out that first demon, then the crowds are just coming to Simon uh, Peter's house, and he's still healing and healing. And verse 35, he goes while it's still dark to pray to a secluded place. When he returns, he said, in verse 38, he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, purpose clause, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. So why is Jesus leaving this area? He's just given them this full day of teaching, implied several other days before that, And so now it is time to go somewhere else that hasn't heard about Christ and hasn't met Christ. So he says, let us go over to the other side. Okay, so then the text says they took him, which is interesting. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them. So I picture that to to give us the picture that the disciples are obeying. They're taking him with them and they are leading the boat over with the rowers. There's other details that Mark gives, and perhaps this is for one reason, if none other. Notice in verse 36, it says, and other boats were with him. That's interesting. Now, that could mean we've talked about the inner circle, the disciples being the inner circle. Then there was a slightly larger circle of true followers outside of the 12 disciples. And then, of course, there's the crowds that were there to be wowed by the miracles and to be fed and all of that that this next bigger circle could be true followers of Christ wanting to follow. But I think there's another reason why this is mentioned, that it's not just the disciples who are eyewitnesses of what is about to take place, that there were others and other boats that witnessed this and that they, too, are eyewitnesses. Well, verse 37, storms and trials will come to us even in the path of obedience. I already alluded to you that I think the disciples are doing what Jesus wants them to do, to take the boat to the other side. And perhaps all of them, including the disciples, had had hoped for some rest and relaxation. It's probably been a long, hot day, and finally in the cool of the evening to depart and to go to the other side, and they had hoped for relaxation, but yet... 
Even in the path of obedience, God brings unexpected challenges into our paths. Listen to John Calvin. He says, The faith that is more precious than gold and silver ought not to be idle and without trial. You see, a true, genuine faith that is more precious than gold and silver will be, from time to time, thrown on the fire and further purified. The heat will come up. The dross, more dross will be removed so that that faith can be purified. Mark tells us here what happens next. There arose a fierce gale of wind. Literally, in the text, it's a great storm or a mega storm. It's actually the word for hurricane, interesting enough, a hurricane or a whirlwind. So Mark tells us that this great wind, great storm comes, a fierce gale. It's translated differently in your Bibles. Psalm 93 says, More than the sound of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Now, just a refresher about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was 700 feet below sea level. It's about 13 miles from north to south, six or seven miles long. But it had unusual coastlines. There were certain areas where there were fishing ports and so forth. But the eastern side was banked full of mountains, stone cliffs and so forth, going up 1,000 or more feet high. And so the the cold air from up there would mix with the warm air that was there, and so storms could develop very, very rapidly. They would also, they could also subside very, very quickly. And so that's the picture here on the Sea of Galilee. These sudden dangerous storms could rage up, and that's why fishing was typically done in the morning or in the evening, because the afternoons were known for these quick storms, these dangerous storms, to um, arise. And so if a storm did come in the evening, it was even more risky with it getting dark. The text here says, makes it very clear, as we'll see, that the storm did not stop by natural causes. As I said, these storms could form quickly and then subside very quickly, but as we'll see, that that's not the case here. So then Mark tells us that in verse 37, the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was filling up. So you have to picture large waves coming over the boat, right? Oh, it says over the boat, right? So these are big waves coming over. The boat is filling with water. This is not just a little water. This isn't that I got my leather shoes a little wet. This is there is a lot of water in the boat. They're waiting. They're fearful. They're scared. They're petrified. It's a tumultuous waves and winds that have come. In fact, in Matthew's account, as this story occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in Matthew's account, he uses the word seismos for the storm, which is where we get the word for earthquake or a sudden shaking. So the gospel writers are trying to emphasize the intensity of the storm. The Apostle Paul experienced one in Acts 27. Of course, it wasn't on the Sea of Galilee, but before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind, And he was in that storm that ended up shipwrecked. So as we picture this, the the boat is already filling up. Actually, the the Greek word Mark uses speaks of being filled all the way to the brim. It speaks of that there's no more room for capacity. It's the idea that it's to the extent of its capacity. So, for example, the wedding at Cana, when Jesus turned the water into wine, 
and he commanded that the water jars, those big barrels, be filled with water, it actually says specifically that, that they were filled to the brim. That's the word that is used there. Now, just as hurricanes, tsunamis, they, they kill many people, there's already a death toll of seven with Isaac and Haiti, if you haven't heard yet, that this does happen. Weather disasters occur often. And, and what happens is that man, we're just dust, Rob reminded us in his prayer, that, that, that man is so has no power in and of himself, that there's nothing we can do. If you find yourself in the path of an onslaught of a tornado, a hurricane, or any other so-called natural disaster, there's really nothing you could do but to call to the one that can intervene. So I picture this scene as the scene with the disciples in this lake with just these raging waves and the boat filling up, kind of like that movie The Perfect Storm. Do you remember that? That fishing vessel that was you know, going up on these waves and the waves were crashing all over it. That's, that's the picture that I see here. Now, I already mentioned that I think Mark certainly has Jonah 1 in mind because some of the verbs that he uses from the Septuagint translation and Jonah 1 are the same ones that he uses here in this text. Jonah 1.4, Steve read it for us earlier, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. But turn with me to Psalm 107 for a moment. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23. I don't know that I'll read all of it for the sake of time, but 23 to 32, a very similar parallel here. Those who go down to the ship, or to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, They have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose to the heavens and they went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunkard and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. And so he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. No doubt Mark has both of these texts in mind as he is penning his gospel. So don't be surprised when trials come. If you're a Christian here today, expect it. Your your faith is going to be tried from time to time. And the answer isn't to say, God has forsaken me. The answer is, is to embrace it and to see what God is teaching you through whatever affliction or trial that is coming. Secondly, we see both the humanity and divinity of Christ in this text, verses 38 and 39. First of all, think that in verse 38a, Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on a cushion. Do you realize this is the only place in the Gospels that tells us that Jesus is sleeping? All three Gospel accounts has this. But it's the only only place in the Gospels, the only story in the Gospels that tells us that he is sleeping. We have a picture of the humanity of Jesus, that, that he really was a man. As John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
If I was to ask you young people, does God get sleepy? No. Almighty God in heaven does not get sleepy. But the God-man who came on this earth and was wed to human flesh, 100% God, 100% man, and his humanity did become tired. He was likely exhausted after a day of teaching and probably hungry and, and weary. And we see that later in John, in John 4, 6, with the woman at the well. It says, and at Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Just as Jonah goes down into the bowels of the ship for a deep sleep, so Mark tells us, that Jesus goes to the stern of the boat and sleeps on a simple sailor's cushion, just a small little cushion that would be provided there that would be shared among them. It's quite a picture here. And, and, and if you look, if you take verse 37 first, that the intensity of the storm and how the boat is filling up with water and the waves that are crashing over it and the fact that Jesus is still sleeping points to the fact that He was probably very tired. I think there's also another reason why it's set forth for us in this way is the huge contrast of his sleeping and the disciples' panic and despair. Do you see that? Let's look at it. It While he's asleep on a cushion, they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Of course, the creeds emphasize the, both the humanity and the deity of Christ. The great Trinitarian creed, the Nicene Creed, speaking of Christ, says, And I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Now, I think we can relate to this. Those of us who have been Christians for a while that, that serve in ministry and, and give of ourselves in ministry, we can relate to becoming tired. Some of us that are here that get here very early to set up and that are the last ones to leave, to lock up, that are setting up the tables and all of this and preparing the, the chapel and working in the nursery, that by the time we get home and we throw our feet up on the couch, that we're tired. And it's okay to be tired like that, and we're exhausted. We too get tired, whether it's diaconal labors of all of that, or preaching, or evangelizing, serving on mission, we get tired and exhausted. And as we find ourselves resting, sometimes, suddenly, just as you're dozing, there's some emergency. Might be a conflict between your children that you need to go deal with. Maybe a phone call, somebody in distress, and so too with Jesus, just as he's beginning to rest, here come the disciples. Well, that's our second subpoint: the despairing disciples awake Jesus with an accusation. Now, I should mention about these fishing boats. Um, a typical first-century Galilean fishing boat. There was one discovered in 1986 um, off the or in the Sea of Galilee in the mud, and that was only what 25 years ago, or a little more than 25 years ago, but. They, that with carbon dating, they dated it to the first century, about 50 B.C. to 50 A.D., somewhere in that time frame. And this was very typical of what the fishing boat would look like. And so it's 24 feet long, 7 feet wide, and 
very low sides because it was a fishing boat. So if it was high, it would be difficult to fish, obviously. So that's, that's all this boat was made up of. And so there wasn't a whole lot to it. It wasn't really fancy, but that would be a typical boat. It would carry 12 to 16 persons. Typically, you would have two rowers on each side rowing and then the room for the other bodies. And so this was likely the type of boat that they find themselves in. And so when you read that the waves are breaking over the boat and that it's filling up, it's not that hard to imagine. It wouldn't take that larger waves to start filling the boat. We have to forget, or don't forget as well, that the despair of the disciples is remarkable when you consider that some of these men were experienced fishermen. These are men that fished that sea, that knew that sea, so to speak, and yet this storm was at a level of such intensity that even the disciples who were formerly fishermen are despairing. We often fear storms ourselves. Even those of us who have gone through difficulties and we see God brings about good, and although we didn't see it then immediately, but then we see how God brings about good through whatever we're going through. We can still forget. We can still not trust God in the midst of the storm. A.A. Hodge, in speaking about God's providence, says, His providential control is in all respects the consistent execution of his eternal, immutable, sovereign purpose. And why do I share that with you? Because if you really have your theology right about who God is, that he is sovereign and in control of all things, then we can throw all of the weight of our trust upon him because we know he is guiding things for his great purposes of which we may not fully understand ever in this life. And so having a right theology helps when dealing with difficulties in our lives and dealing with anything else for that matter. There's really two storms going on. There's the storm on the sea that's just absolutely raging. But then inside the disciples' heart, there's another storm. A storm of doubt. Is this really the Son of God? How can he sleep? Does he not even care for us? Is this the end? We've left all to die on the sea like this? You see, the storm that's going on in their heart is just as intense as the one in the water. Did they forget the words of our Lord? In verse 35, what did he say? Look at it with me. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Had they forgotten those words? If Jesus Christ said, let us go to the other side, they will make it to the other side. They will make it. They may get wet. They may be scared. <laughs> but they're going to make it. Philippians 1.6, of course, speaks of he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ. And so, too, when when he says that he will complete this work, his word is sure. Secondly, did they forget that the Lord himself was in the boat with them? So too we can forget when we have these trials or an onslaught of difficulty that hits us and it blindsides us. The first response is, Lord, why aren't you here? And we forget that, oh, he's here. He's here in the midst of that. It takes a while sometimes and our weakness of our flesh to understand that. But I want you to notice with me the tone of the disciples' words. At verse, the end of verse 38, Teacher, do you not care 
that we are perishing. Now, both Matthew and Luke and chapter 8 of each of those books have an account of this story. Both Matthew and Luke tone it down just a little bit as far as the nature of, our, of the disciples' words. Master, master is in Matthew, and then save us, Lord. It's in the form of a prayer in Luke. But I have to go back to what I've become convinced of, that Mark is the first gospel written, that Mark is getting his information from the apostle Peter, and Peter was an eyewitness that was there. And so to, so I think that maybe it was more like this. And so they rudely wake up a tired Jesus with a tone of sharp indictment. Do you not care? That's the worst thing you can say to a compassionate Savior. That's the worst thing you can say to a sovereign God who is ruling all things according to his power. Do you not care? It's like the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 44 when he says, Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do you reject us forever? Why do you hide your face? Our perception can be like that, but we know that he will never forsake his children. This isn't the only time the disciples act disrespectfully. And turn over the page to 531. We'll see this in a couple weeks. But in the context of the woman with her uh, flow of blood, verse 31, and it's, or verse 30, immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that the power proceeded from him had gone forth, turned around to the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And notice, nobody answers but the disciples. The disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? And there again, you know, <laughs> the disciples kind of, come on, Jesus, the crowd's everywhere here. And, but of course, we know from the previous verse, he perceived that power went out of him. Also in the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 and verse 35, it was already quite late, and his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? You see, once again, something of the harsh words of the disciples But as I said, we too can feel forsaken when the waves of trials are coming upon us and crashing over our heads. We say things we often regret, and and, and this is true. And even in Isaiah 49, Zion is personified as saying, The Lord has forsaken me. Isaiah 49 and verse 16. So ask yourself, ask yourself, what would you have done in a situation like this? What would be your response in a situation like this? Or to put it another way, how do you respond when trials come your way? How do you respond? We forget that Jesus is with us and that he is ruling all things after the counsel of his will. Again, we have to be convinced of the sovereignty of God. Well, Verse 39, the divine authority of Christ clearly demonstrated And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Please note with me, he does not rebuke the disciples. 
He has a word for them in a moment, but he does not rebuke them first. He, he, he hears the cry of distress. In fact, don't ever think that God doesn't hear your cries. His ear is not dull. He is in full control. He rebukes the wind and the waves, not by incantation or by prayer, but by the authoritative word of Christ. He commands the wind and the waves. In fact, he treats the wind as though it's an animate being rather than an inanimate being. And he treats the waves like an unruly personal being. Look at it. He rebukes the wind and then he says to the sea, hush and be still. Mark uses both of these words back in chapter 1 in the casting out of that first demon in verse 25. Verse 24, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. It's the same word that Mark uses here, which the hush be still literally means be muzzled. (laughs) Be muzzled. And that's what he told the demon, because it wasn't his time to reveal who he was. And so that's what he tells the wind Mark uses these words here, I think, to show that Jesus is indeed the strong man who subdues Satan and all of his uh, dominion, all of his demons. And it foreshadows his power over the demoniac that we'll see next week in chapter 5. The one who created nature and who created all things by the word of his power controls all things. And they must obey and submit to the creator's voice. It's clearly seen in the parting of the Red Sea that this is something that God has done. As God's people come to the shore of the sea and Moses holds up the staff and the the water stops and the Israelites cross as though it's on dry land. Something that God does. God of Israel is the Lord of history and nature. and He is a God that involves himself with our experiences by revealing himself to us. Psalm 89, O Lord of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you, and you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. I've already mentioned that, again, the point here is not to say, wow, that's amazing. By his word, the wind and the waves obey. Yes, that is amazing. But the point here is to connect with interpreting the New Testament in light of the Old to see that it is only God who can still the waves and to stop the wind. Therefore, Jesus is indeed God. He demonstrates his deity. Psalm 65 is another one. There's repeated text. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God, of our salvation. You who are who are the trust of the ends of the earth to the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by a strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas and the roaring of the waves. Who is it that stills the waves? None other than God. Isaiah seventeen thirteen. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee away. Psalm 107, we already read it. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Just like we read in Jonah. They picked up Jonah, they threw him in the sea, and the sea stopped its raging, and the men feared the Lord greatly. You see, this is not a storm that came about all by itself and then went away all by itself. 
This is Jesus Christ demonstrating his deity before the disciples, further preparing them for what would lie ahead. So trials will come to test your faith. We consider that first. Secondly, remember that they come from a sovereign God as demonstrated in the humanity and deity of Christ. And then finally, the last two verses today, the antidote to fear is faith. The antidote to fear is faith. Jesus shows patience and pity on the disciples. They lacked faith, and so they acted literally cowardly. They forgot the miracles that they had already seen, and Jesus gently rebukes the disciples. Even though they had some insight into who he was, we know that in verse 11 of chapter 4, to you it has been given to know the mystery of God. So there's something in which... They're, they're getting a lot more than what the crowds are getting, but they still don't fully understand. They still don't fully know him, and they wouldn't until after the um, crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Christ. So they had some other understanding, but they were still partially blind. In verse 40, and he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? The text says afraid. Literally, the word is cowardly or timidly. Some of them are brute fishermen, you know? And here Jesus is saying, why are you afraid and acting like a coward? No one likes to be called a coward. But sometimes hard words are needed to bring about the intended result. Just like in biblical counseling. Biblical counseling, we, we, we're there to encourage and to comfort, but also to admonish when need be. And so that is needed to exhort and admonish. And we can be just like the disciples and focus on the immediate moment of a trial. And yet Jesus is full of tender mercy. Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He's preparing these disciples for greater storms that would come. It is these men, ultimately, that would turn the world upside down after his ascension. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded, too, that just as Jesus knew the heart of each one of those disciples, he knows your heart. He understands where you're weak. He understands where you lack hope. He understands your frailty. And he sees all of your imperfections. He knows your weak faith, your lack of courage. But be encouraged that the same Jesus that stilled the sea then is the same today. That he can still the sea and the storms of your life, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the comfort that we have. He is exalted at the right hand of God, and there he intercedes for all of his church, all of his blood-bought people, interceding for them, sympathizing with them when they're going through difficulties and troubles. The writer of the Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. The double negative, emphasizing in the Greek a resounding positive that, yes, we do have a high priest who can sympathize. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, and yet without sin. Let us remember that. When the storms come into our life, let us remember that he really does sympathize with us, that he's praying 
for us, that he's going with us through the storm. And let us be those who can remind others when they go through the storm to remind them of these truths so that they might receive the comfort and encouragement that you have to offer them. And so verse 41, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The disciples' question is a rhetorical question. It's anticipating a response of faith. Who then is this? Young people, who then is this that can still the waves and the wind and a storm that caused large muscular fishermen, at least as I picture them, to be all afraid and distressing? Who is this that can storm that, that can calm a storm like this? It is Almighty God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Son of God. It's interesting the choice of words that are used here. I, I, I sense that they were more afraid at the end of this miracle than in the midst of the storm. Because we're told that they were afraid, but now they've been confronted with the bold deity and pure deity of Christ as he, as he calms the storm. And they've realized something more of who he is. And, and there's a play on words here. Uh, it says, and they were very much afraid in the NAS. The old King James says they feared exceedingly. The New English translation says they were overwhelmed with fear. The translators are trying to communicate the play on words that Mark uses, which is simply using the noun and the verb form of phobia, which means to fear, to be afraid of something. And so quite woodenly and literally, it was they feared with great fear. (laughs) And that's really where they were at. They feared with great fear and said to one another. Can you imagine that? Having that kind of a fear and looking to one another, it's kind of this awestruck thing. Who then is? this we thought we knew who he was we knew he was a great teacher we knew that he must be sent from God could it be that he is God in the flesh I think that's what they're grappling with it's a fascinating scene it gives me goosebumps to think about it that Jesus authority over creation raised this question in their hearts who then is this This isn't the only time that this will happen. We see at the transfiguration, we'll get to that later, where the the three, the inner circle of the inner circle, were up on the mount and saw him in his glory. But Jesus is disclosing himself more and more, revealing himself so that their faith would be increased. In chapter 5 and verse 15, it says, They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, And the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. So this is when the townspeople come to see the demoniac suddenly in his own mind and and a a testimony again of the fear of God. It happens later in 650 and other places. We saw it in Jonah 1. And the men feared the Lord greatly after the waves came to a standstill. The presence of the supernatural is way more fearful the natural calamities, hurricanes, tornadoes, and that's what we have pictured here. Well, three questions as we end. Three simple, quick questions. I'm just going to shoot them off to you. You can ask yourself, how will you respond to Jesus? 
as he has revealed himself to be the son of God, as there is, is he supernatural as it were, it should be with worship and faith and awe and honor and living with a keen awareness that he is with us and an awareness of his presence. Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and all. That's how you should respond to Jesus. Secondly, how will you respond when the next violent trial, unexpected difficulty comes into your life? Will it be with fear and doubt, asking where is God? Will it be with despair, fretting, and, and going about in your own flesh to try to fix the situation? You see, hopeless situations cause us to fear because we can't control them. We're all deep down control freaks. <laughs> we want to control things. And we can't control a hopeless situation. The truth is, when we find ourselves in the situation where the disciples were fearing for their lives, we often forget that God is more powerful And whatever difficulty, whatever trial has come into our life. God is greater than our problem. 1 Peter 5, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's the remedy. To throw it all on him. He will never leave us or forsake us. Thirdly, will you come to Jesus Christ by faith? I invite you today to answer the question, who then is this? With a response of faith. Faith and trust that Jesus Christ is the the Savior that was sent to this earth to die the horrible death on the cross, to be buried and to be risen from the dead, conquering death forever. He died for all the sins of all of God's people. But we must respond in repentance and faith. Your response should be, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to understand, like it says in Ephesians 2, that we are dead in trespasses and sins, that Salvation itself is a supernatural work that comes from God alone. He is the one that has to breathe life into our dead bodies, as it were, because we are spiritually dead, fallen in Adam. But then the great gift of God, that it is by grace and faith if we will but trust him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text before us. Lord, we give you thanks, and we ask that you would prepare us for the difficulties and trials that we know are yet ahead of us in this life. Lord, would you strengthen our faith? Would you build us up? Will you convince us of the need of the New Testament church where we can lean on others and when we can prop others up to encourage others? And Lord, that healthy body dynamic that you have designed for the church of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would instill the importance of that in each of our hearts. And Lord, for those that are in the midst of the storm now, Would you bring them comfort? Would you give them clarity to know that you are sovereign and in control no matter how big the waves get and no matter how much water is in the boat? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.